Hello, everybody. My name is Mark. Um, <clears throat> and um, my wife was here in the first service, so this joke was a bit funnier, but bear with me. Um, I, I don't know if your brain works like mine, but one of the first things that I noticed about the weekend away was the dates, which fall near Valentine's Day. And I was like, brilliant. Two birds, one stone, sorted. We're going away, love. Fantastic. Um, and if she was here, she would tell you that... Uh, for our 10th anniversary, I took it to focus. So this is very much in keeping with our relationship. Um, but that has very little to do with anything uh, about Jesus or anything that I want to say with the rest of our time today. So we're, we're, in, about, uh, we're in week three, I think, of a series on Galatians. And we've managed to get all the way to verse 6, which is where our reading started today. So we'll be doing this for a very long time. Um, and you'll be here for a few hours today. But let's get started nonetheless. Um, I want to show you a picture. When my second son was born, someone bought us a gift. And it looked a little bit like this. Um, it, was, it was what I've reliably been informed by the internet is an artwork sign. This is an artwork sign, everybody. Um, and it had written across it, uh, look what I made. Hey, look what I made. And it has these little clips on it to display mini masterpieces that your children produce. If your children are anything like mine, they produce more of them than you know what to do with, more than there are clips on the, on the artwork sign. Um, we never used this gift, but it came to mind. Um, that's no reflection on my children. It's a, more a reflection on me. But we never used this. But it came to mind when I was listening to an audio book. I was listening to a book called The Chimp Paradox by this guy, Professor Steve Peters. Now, Professor Steve Peters is famous uh, as a psychiatrist for working with people like Sir Chris Hoy, and Victoria Pendleton, and Stephen Gerrard, and Ronnie O'Sullivan. And if you're not into sport, you don't know who any of them are, and I have no more people on my list, so that's it. Um, <laughs> but he, his book, The Chimp Paradox, is, is what he calls a mind management system. It's about how your emotions work, and how your logical brain works, and how they can interact, and how you can get the best out of that, and how you can work with it. But at one point, he talks about something that he calls fridge door syndrome. I, I, it reminded me of this artwork sign. And he tells this story, this amazing scene, depicts this amazing scene. So imagine with me, we're going to do a lot of imagining today. Imagine with me that you're a child on your first day of school. For some of the students who are new here, this might be easier. Um, Imagine you're a child on your first day at school. You're full of emotion. You don't know quite what's going on, but you're excited or you're terrified or you're, you haven't made any friends yet and you don't know what it's going to be like and it's unknown and it's scary, but it's very, very exciting because you're a big boy or girl now and you're going to school and yeah, it's that day. Um, and then you get into school and the teacher is doing what teachers do. Um, I'm talking like I've never been to a school. Um, the teacher says, let's paint a picture for mummy and daddy. Right? Let's paint a picture for you to take home and show everybody what you've done today. And you're very excited about this and you put all of your talent, all four or five years worth of your talent into this creation. You paint this picture. And at the end of the day, they take you out and you run across the playground to your parents and you're carrying your creation and you run up to mummy or daddy and you show them and they, they start gushing, don't they? Oh, look, 
Look what you've made. It's so beautiful. You're so clever. You're such an artist. I'm so proud of you. Aren't you amazing? It's wonderful. I want to, let's take it home and we'll put it on the fridge so everyone can see how clever you are. See how brilliant you are. And at this point, Steve Peters stops the story, steps back into teaching voice and makes me feel like a terrible parent, if I'm honest. What has this child learned, he asks. They've learned that their worth is tied up with what they achieve. It's how beautiful the painting is that makes them clever and how clever they are that makes them worth loving. It's putting this picture up that's going to make others value them. And he tells this story, it's describing what he calls fridge door syndrome. Putting this picture on the fridge door is, is encapsulating this story because his point is that if this kind of interaction happens to the child, if it happens to you or to I, often enough and early enough and or early enough, it stops being a scene on a day and starts becoming a story that we live in, that shapes our attitudes and our actions day by day by day. It's a story in which you have value because of what you do. It's a story in which you have value because of what you achieve, right? Now, it's worth mentioning at this point, and I just want to remind you, I never put the sign up my children are not scarred. What, what initially appeared laziness was actually an instinctive, brilliant act of parenting. So we're all relieved about that. But this story, it might be one that sounds familiar to you. It might be one that you recognize. You might even recognize yourself in this story. And if you do, you're in really good company. Professor Steve Peters, he reckons that the majority of people in the Western world live with some version of this story as part of their day-by-day lives. That's you and that's me. Why tell you about this story? Why show you my artwork sign? I tell you this story because we're going to think about God today. We're going to think about God. That's what week three is in our Galatians series. It's God. It's God week. But I think that what Paul has to say about God in the passage that we've read is going to blow this story apart. You might like to have your Bible open if you have it with you or an app or whatever. Look at verse 10 of our reading. Think about verse 10 of our reading. What does Paul say? He says, am I pleasing God or am I pleasing people? Am I pleasing God or am I pleasing people? Paul is going after this idea that our worth, that your worth is tied up with how good the picture on your fridge door is, with how clever everyone else thinks that you are. And in fact, what he wants to tell us is that it's about God. The whole beginning of the letter to the Galatians, and consequently the whole argument of the letter to Galatians, to the Galatians, revolves around a distinction between human authority and God's authority. And it's sharpened in verse 10 into this really particular question. Who are you pleasing? Are you pleasing God? Who who am I pleasing? Paul's asking. Am I pleasing God or am I pleasing people? 
right? And if this is the question, if this is the question, then what you and I think of God is going to be really important. What you and I think of God is going to be really important. If what, if what you and I think about God actually grows out of a fridge door story, if God's a fridge door kind of God, that's going to be a major issue. There's a guy called um, Aidan Wilson Tozer who became known as a modern day prophet and he famously wrote um, that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what comes into your mind? Seriously. Take a minute, shut your eyes. Told you we'd do some more imagining. What is it that comes into your mind? What picture, what word, what feeling, what sense? What comes into your mind when you think of God? Maybe what you found there surprised you. That's okay. Maybe it was still a bit blank. Also okay. Some people take longer to think. I'm one of them. But this, this question, this is what Paul's addressing in this letter. What is it that comes into your mind when you think of God? Who is God? What does that mean for you? And who we think God is, is fundamental. It's more foundational than who I think I am. I think very often it's easy for us to think that Jesus is very gracious, but it's harder for us to think about God. God's kind of like a little bit vaguer, um, a little bit more like nebulous, a little bit less easy to grasp. Um, they, they, maybe there have been less depictions of God in film than maybe Jesus. Um, but I want to suggest to you that Paul has a really clear idea of who God is. So look again with me at chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes, and he writes to the Galatians, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ. What's he talking about? I mean, it sounds a little bit like he might be talking about himself, right? You, you, you listened to me. You heard what I had to say. You heard the gospel. You, you agreed with me. You changed your lives. It was all brilliant. And now you've stopped listening to me and you're listening to other people. And I am sad and I am angry. We already know this is an angry letter because, um, as Johnny told us a couple of weeks ago, there's no thanksgiving section. Paul is not thankful in this letter. He's fuming, right? And maybe he's just angry that they've stopped listening to him. But what if it's not him that he's talking about. Who else could he be talking about? When Paul writes about his own encounter with Jesus, a little bit later in the same chapter, in verse 15, he uses a really similar phrase to describe God. So he talks about God 
when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. When God, who set me apart and called me through his grace. Who's doing the calling here? It's God, right? God is calling Paul. It's God who calls Paul and who calls Paul to extend that calling to others so that I might proclaim God among the Gentiles. And in another letter that Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, he closes it by writing this. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this bit. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do this. Who's the one who calls? The one who calls is God. This is almost functioning like a title or a technical term. Who is God? God's the one who calls you. And the one who calls you is faithful. And the one who calls you is faithful to do what? To keep you. To keep you. To keep your whole body, soul, spirit. All of you. This is who God is. God is the one who calls. He's faithful and he will do it. So God is the one who calls. God's the one who called Paul. God's the one who called Paul so that others would hear that calling from him. So even if it was Paul preaching to the Galatians, it was God that they heard calling them in the grace of Christ. And this fits with the big biblical picture of God, the big story that the Bible wants to tell us about God. In the Old Testament, we're zooming right out here, macro scale. In the Old Testament, God reveals himself as the God of a people. In Leviticus 26, it says this, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Leviticus 26 verse 12. What do we see here? God, who gets to reveal himself in any way that he chooses, chooses to reveal himself as the God of a people. Why would he do that? Well, God can't show you anything that isn't God because all he's got is God because he is God. When you start talking about God, some of the sentences get a bit weird. But he is God. So he can't show you not God because not God would be not God and he's not not God, he's God, right? I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. What does that tell us about God? It tells us that God is the kind of God who has a people. That's who God is. God can't, God has chosen not to be God in a way that doesn't have a people. And that was your first lesson in the theology of Karl Barth. Um, Some of you are excited about that. Some of you have no idea. It's fine. Um, In the New Testament, Paul picks up this sentence and applies it to the church, to you and to me. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16, he picks up this verse and applies it to the church. And in Galatians, what are we seeing? We're seeing the personal calling element of this big story that God's always been writing. God is a God who has a people, and so God is a God who calls in grace. And God calls you, and God calls me. That's who he is. 
He isn't other than that. He is in relationship with his people. And this means that God calls because God establishes that relationship. He extends grace. So God is the one who calls you in the grace of Christ. What does that mean? I want to run through three things and then come back to our artwork sign and our fridge door and maybe ask what it means for that. But three things that it means if God is the one who calls us in the grace of Christ. Firstly, God is God. I told you the sentences are really good. Uh, God is God and you are not. God is God and you are not. God is the one who calls in grace. His calling is done on the basis of his godness and not on the basis of a criteria that you can know and that you can game and that you can understand and that you can influence by putting a better picture on your fridge door, on your artwork sign. God is God and you are not. In Isaiah 55, it kind of brings this home in this really famous verse. Isaiah 55 verses 8 to 9 talk about God's ways being higher than our ways. And verse 9 says this, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are higher than our ways and we don't get to question that. God is God, and you are not. That's number one. Number two, God calls you in grace. God is God, and you are not, but God calls you in grace. What does this mean? It means that God is fundamentally for you. God is fundamentally for you. God has chosen to reveal himself in such a way that that's what's true about him. That's who God is. This is what he shows us in Jesus, who gives himself for us. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about him who, became, him who knew no sin becoming sin for us. What happens in Jesus, this is the most remarkable verse in the Bible, if you're asking me. What happens in Jesus is God, who cannot come to sin, this is the only place where God can't go, get, God in Jesus comes to sin. The one place where God's not allowed to be. Why? For you. For you. That's why. What comes immediately before Isaiah talks about God's ways being higher than ours in Isaiah 58, uh, 55 verses 8 to 9 is Isaiah 55 verse 7, which says this. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord. Why? That he may have mercy on them. And to our God. Why? For he will abundantly pardon. God's ways are higher than our ways because he is more gracious than we are. Because he has a more abundant pardon than you've imagined. Because he is more forgiving and more merciful. God's transcendence, God's holiness, God's lofty otherness, the way that God is higher is not something which is an intimidation tactic or an expression of fear or a, like puffing his chest out, being a big man. No. God's otherness is a feature of his overwhelming love. God loves so much that that's what makes him other than us. How amazing is that? 
He's not tame, but he is good, as C.S. Lewis writes about Aslan. So, God is God, and you are not. God calls you in grace. He is for you. This is who God is. And thirdly, God is all in all. God is God, God calls in grace, and God is all in all. If you look at verse 15 in our passage, Paul says, But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. Listen to that bit. Who set me apart from birth, from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace. What does that mean? That means that the whole of Paul's life sits within the story of grace that he's telling. The whole of his life is part of the story of grace. Now look back at the verses immediately before that, verses 13 and 14. You've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. That life is part of the story of God's grace. That life. That life of religious persecution to the point of killing people is part of the story of God's grace in Paul's life. Paul's past is part of the story of God's grace in his life. Paul's present authority comes from God. And Paul's future life The trajectory of his life is for God's glory. In verse 24, verses 23 to 24, he talks about these other churches. They didn't know me as a person, but they heard a report about me and they praised God because of me. He's going to go on to say in chapter 2, I don't live anymore as myself. I live as Christ. You foolish Galatians, he's going to go on to say later, who bewitched you when you'd seen Jesus in front of your eyes? How on earth have they seen Jesus? Because they have seen Paul, right? That's how much his future is dominated by the story that God is telling about him. So Paul's future life is is for God's glory. So God is God and you are not. God calls in grace. God is fundamentally for you, and God is all in all. His grace reaches into every element of every story. And what does this mean for us? I think it brings us back to the fridge door, to the artwork sign, and it asks us that question again. What comes into your mind when you think about God? In verse 10 of this chapter, Paul writes, If I was still pleasing people, I could not be a servant of Christ. I've added the emphasis. It's not there in the original. They didn't have italics. This sentence, this is a reality statement, not a moral statement. It's a statement of fact, not a statement of should. It's not a, you must not try to please people. It's just a statement of fact. If you're still trying to please people, you haven't learned the fullness of what grace is for you. You haven't experienced the fullness of what grace is for you. Why is that? Because God's grace is given to the unworthy and it makes them worthy. You can't 
receive grace and keep trying to become worthy in a different way. It undermines receiving grace. It says grace is not enough because it doesn't tick the box in this other value system. It isn't, it, grace is not enough because it's not the picture that I want to put on the artwork sign. Right? Grace is its own currency, and it doesn't do exchange rates. Remember why this is true. This is true because of who God is. Who is God? God is God and you are not. God calls you in grace, and God is all in all. There is only one story that God is telling about your life, and it's the story of his beloved child. Who you think God is, is more fundamental than who you think you are. There's an Old Testament um, scholar, a guy who writes about the Old Testament, called Walter Brueggemann. And he has this beautiful conversation about exactly this idea. And in it, he warns about being seduced into a self-serving narrative that offers everything but is actually fundamentally destructive. And he talks about it as the myth of being self-serving sufficient. It's the fridge door myth by another name. It's the artwork sign by another name. The idea that you can achieve worth and value and meaning and love and acceptance by putting a good enough picture on the fridge door of your life or on your Instagram feed or on your Facebook or on your TikTok or on whatever new one I don't know about or by ensuring that you never leave the house without makeup on or by hitting the targets that no one else could possibly reach. Whatever it is for you, it's a myth of self-sufficiency. Life with God is opposed to it because it happens on God's terms, not on ours, not on mine, not on yours. As Brueggemann puts it, he says this thing, um, we cannot secure ourselves. We can only be secured by one who is faithful to us. (laughs) And thankfully for us, that's who God is. He's the one who calls you in grace when you and I are unworthy. And the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. God calls you in grace because you are you, irrespective of what you've done or not done. He calls you, in fact, he doesn't even call you because you are you. He calls you because that's who he is. That's who he is. You cannot get away from that and you cannot change that. That's who he is. He cares about what you do. And Galatians has got plenty to say about that. But he loves who you are. He loves who you are because that's who he is. It's less... You and me saying, look what I made to him, trying to impress him. Look how I've self-defined and self-fulfilled. I made it happen for myself. It's more him saying, look what I made about you. He called you into being, and he called you in grace, and he isn't going to stop. 
I don't, I, yeah. This feels like, to me, really, really good news, because I need that in my life. But actually, I think it's a really uncomfortable reality to try to live out of sometimes. The Galatians, they turn from this, and that's why Paul's angry, as we've talked about. Um, but they turn from this. Why? Because it's hard to live in a story that no one else understands. It's hard, right? It's hard for you and me to be defined by who God is when the rest of the world knows that he doesn't exist. This is not an easy story to live out of, even if it is the best possible news. It's hard to receive your value from God rather than proving it. I would like to prove myself. It's hard to receive your value from God, especially when God's value is not a cash value, right? In a world where, <laughs> where basically everything is valued in financial terms, it's hard to receive your value from God when God's value is not a cash value, when this story doesn't make sense. But this is who God is. This God is bigger than a fridge door or an artwork sign. He's bigger than that story that plagues the Western world and that you and I so often, so easily live in. He speaks a better word. What does he say? He says, your value is not dependent on what you do. Why? Your value is dependent on my grace. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Where does this leave us? It leaves us living dependent lives, living dependent on God's grace. And we're called to this. You're not called by me, for sure. You're called to this by the one who called you in the grace of Christ. We're called by God himself. God, it is astonishing that this is who you are. That this is who you reveal yourself to be, who you've chosen to be for our sake. We stand in awe of you. So as we finish this time, what I want to do is lead us into a moment of confession. I want to lead us back to that question, what comes into your mind when you think of God? And lead us into a moment of confession because whatever your picture of God is, it's not the fullness of who God is. And confession, we're going to use a liturgy and it's a container in this moment to hold a response to God, to come honestly before God and have him renew his image in us. Holy Spirit, come. Come and teach us who God really is.
Show us the way that you're waiting. God's working on your heart, that's fine, stay there. We're going to use some borrowed words just as a container for this moment to ask God to renew our vision of him. They'll come up on the screens, I'll read the white, you read the orange. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you and I the ungodly. Let us show our love for him by confessing our sins in sorrow and faith. Lord, we confess the smallness of our vision of you. Open the eyes of our hearts to see you. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. We confess our slowness to recognize your kindness. Let us taste the goodness of your grace. Christ, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. God, we confess our reluctance to release our lives. Be the faithful one who secures us. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. May this holy, astonishing, unexpected God of love bring us back to himself as he really is. Forgive us our sins and assure us of his eternal love in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.